Welcome to the Peace Corner podcast. This series is brought together by GPAC, UNOI, and CSPPS. Each episode will bring to you a different peace builder and their personal story. In this season, we dive into the topic of inclusivity. How do we meaningfully bring this concept beyond tokenism? How can we truly involve women and youth in peace building? Young women and men still suffer from stereotypes, myths, and policy panics that harm their agency and affect realizing their full potential for peace. The evidence is clear. Development is not sustainable if it is not fair and inclusive. Our efforts to build and sustain peace need to be democratized to include the communities most affected. Young people are our best chance in succeeding. In order to break the status quo and make the world a better place, we need gender equality. The fantastic phrase, women's rights are human rights, must become the spine of all our political work. Welcome to today's episode of the Peace Corner podcast. Today we're going to dive into the topic of building a louder peace building movement with our special guest Madeline Rose, who is the Director of Campaigns and Policy at Alliance for Peace Building. Firstly, we'd like to welcome you to the podcast. We've been running with the theme of inclusivity for this season, which created a perfect opportunity to have you as a guest. Some of your work looks at the narrative of peace and the idea that there is more that unites us than divides us. And I think that's a really impactful message to understand and acknowledge when discussing inclusivity. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. And so we'd like to kick off with our first question, which is what personally motivated you to become a peace builder and how did this journey lead you to your current role? Yeah, you know, I think in some ways I was always an inherent peace builder just without the the terminology, which I, I know a lot of folks on your podcast say. But, you know, the first sort of memory I have is being in middle school and seeing a fight break out and just being so sad. Like I, I remember being so upset and just so viscerally um, reactive to just violence as a problem solving mechanism. And of course, I you know tried to break up the fight, which is between two boys. And so in some ways, I just always had a, a penchant for nonviolence. But I think when that became political was around the pending U.S. invasion of the war in Iraq, um, I was you know, very young. Um, and it was really the political enlightenment moment for for my generation being an American. Um, and my mom took me and a couple of my friends to the, the protests that were organized worldwide, um, which were to this day, actually, one of the single largest was one of the single largest days of action globally against war, um, protesting against the U.S. illegal invasion of the Iraq war. Um, and obviously we lost, but I think it really awakened my sense of political um, power um, and my sense of organizing and my sort of responsibility and role as a citizen to, you know, engage in matters of, of uh, war and peace building. Um, especially, I think, being an American, where we are, are such drivers of the global militaristic um, trend lines. So um, my actual career has kind of bounced around a bit. Um, and I've worked, uh, I worked in the United Nations for a little bit. I worked in the United States Congress. Um, and the last seven, eight years, I've been doing advocacy, um, trying to make global policy more supportive of peace building and conflict resolution. Well, wow, it's really interesting to hear about that moment of the invasion, especially being from the UK. That was also a, a prominent moment in my life, too. Yeah. 
Um, and then that takes us on to our next question, which is about the Peace Plus Coalition. And uh, this talks about how peace building is such a small field and therefore in order to achieve peace building goals, we need to move beyond individual organisations' priorities and speak with a collective voice. Can you tell us a bit about the power of a collective voice and what this can do for peace building as a field? Yeah, so in the Plus Peace Coalition, we are trying to support uh, peace building organizations to achieve what we call a greater collective narrative um, and to exert more narrative discipline in the public domain, which is essentially, you know, a fancy way of saying, you know, we really need to be more on message um, and to use messages that relate to the human experience in a more inclusive way. So, for example, you know, I you know have spent my career in at the nexus of national security, foreign policy, war, peace, safety issues, but I really had never heard the word peace building, right? Because peace building has, in, in some ways, become it's it's small, it's projectized, it's sort of in this niche group of experts who are mediators and are they're professionally trained or they've done you know peace processes. Um, and what the, the vision of Plus Peace is to really open up that space and invite more people to the peace building movement who maybe have never heard of it, um, but probably relate to it and probably would support it. Um, and so we're, we're using tools, or, you know, such as sort of movement messaging theory and collective narrative theory, um, which is to say, you know, instead of, you know, GPAC or Search for Common Ground or the Peace Initiative Network, which is our member in Nigeria, you know, instead of all of these individual organizations putting out their own press release with their own phrasing or their own tweet or their own, you know, letter, how can we actually use the same language and use more inclusive language so that, you know, people start to follow our core narrative? So I was trained on this when I worked in the United States Congress which is, you know, in, in political parties worldwide, right? You are kind of told what to say and what not to say, and you stay on message. So it's not actually that complex of a concept, right? Narrative discipline. Um, but in in fields uh, like this, you know, you end up kind of all ad- adapting for sometimes good reason. You know, you have different words, you have different goals. So we are trying at the Plus Peace Coalition to say, you know, 80% of the time, you might you organizations might still be working on different topics, but we can all still exist under a more coherent narrative frame and we can use more of the same key messages in the public debate. And through that process, more people in the public and more politicians will start to follow our narrative um, and come to sort of understand who we as a field are. And uh, this brings us on to the next element of the uh, Plus Peace strategy, which is collective action. An example of collective action is the Peace in Our Cities campaign, which was launched on the International Day of Peace in 2019. Can you tell us a bit more about this campaign and how it hopes to use collective action to achieve peace? Yeah, so um, the Peace in Our Cities campaign we're really excited about. Um, And again, it... It so in terms of plus peace and how we were set up, we said, you know, we believe that peace builders can do more together on three lines of effort. So one, collective campaigns, two, collective narrative, and three, public mobilization. So the Peace in Our Cities campaign really, um, in some ways, builds on on what I was just talking about about narrative, right? How do we 
position what we do in a way that everyone understands. So, you know, the way I, I like to talk about this is, you know, think about it. Maybe, <laughs> maybe 0.05% of people on the planet have ever heard of the word peace building, right? Like probably <laughs> even a few less. Less than that, yeah. Less than that, right? <laughs> it's okay. It's a, it's a fact. But every single person on this planet knows what it feels like to walk home at night and feel safe or not. Right. Yeah. We all know that feeling, no matter who you are, where you're on the planet. And we, the peace builders, we want to help work on that. Right. We want to work on human safety and the, the, sa- the, the, the human freedom to be able to walk home at night, no matter where you live and feel safe. So the Peace in Our Cities campaign is um, trying to kind of tap into that universality of the freedom of, of being safe um, and and incubate and mobilize political momentum towards um, reducing global violence. So we um, launched this campaign in September um, on the International Day of Peace in New York. Um, and essentially, we um, launched with a global coalition of, uh, at the time, 10 mayors around the world. Uh, now we're up to 16, but we had 10 mayors and 10 partners that signed a pledge that said, we are going to pledge to lead a global movement to reduce urban violence and build more peaceful cities. Um, And we're essentially now working with that cohort, which we're calling the early adopters cohort, early adopters, I think because I live in the Silicon Valley now where everyone talks about early adopters and and startup language, which I think is somewhat fun. But um, so we have this sort of early adopters coalition of kind of, you know, the true believers who are really committed to this agenda and committed to building more peaceful cities and more peaceful urban futures. And we're now spending the year together, um, kind of crafting out and putting some more substantial commitments behind that pledge. So, you know, just today we were meeting with uh, the municipality of The Hague here in the Netherlands, which is, you know, the city of peace and justice to say, you know, to bring them onto the campaign. We have Oakland, California, where I'm from, Dayton, Ohio, uh, alongside Guadalajara, Mexico, Durban, South Africa, Nairobi, Kenya, Cali, Colombia, Colombo, Sri Lanka. So it's a super diverse coalition of, of mayors with very different sort of populations, very different lived experiences, but who together are standing in solidarity saying, you know, we believe in building more peaceful cities. Um, and we're, yeah, we're now kind of trying to put the, the the substance behind, you know, what would it actually take if, if this group of cities and others were to lead a global movement to significantly reduce urban violence by 2030 and what type of support would they need from us? So we're looking at models like the C40 Climate Leadership Group, which was launched by initially 40 cities around the world who were committed to uh, taking on the climate change challenge. Um, We're looking at Rockefeller Resilient Cities, which was a kind of initiative to really bring more of a resilience lens to city planning. Um, The Carbon Neutral Cities Alliance, which again, specifically helps cities develop, you know, achievable approaches to getting carbon neutral. Um, So there's a lot of good platforms out there, and we don't really have one on peace and violence prevention. So we, the peace builders, you know, kind of took that upon ourselves and said, you know, let's see what we can build. So um, it's going quite well. And we'll have kind of a follow-up launch uh, this coming September, September 2020 on the sides of the UN General Assembly, which hopefully, um, you know, maybe we'll get to 50, the P50. So we'll see, we'll see where we get. 
Oh, well, I wish you good luck with that. And uh, I hope things go well in September. Thank you. And you've already spoken to us about the narrative of peace, but I just wanted to ask you a little bit more about that. And at Plus Peace, they recognise that there is so much progress made by those involved in the peace building process, but this is often invisible to public and political eyes. And a core part of making peace building accessible to a wider audience and gaining public and political support is the narrative used to discuss peace. Can you tell us a bit more about the Narratives for Peace initiative uh, that's been launched and how can it help to gain public attention and support? Yeah, so the Narratives for Peace project is um, a a dedicated research effort led by one of the Plus Peace members, um, Partners Global. And it's really, it's using rigorous social science research to understand how the public thinks about peace and how the public thinks about peace building um, and sort of why we haven't yet been able to penetrate that public consciousness. Um, It's specifically looking at the United States to start um, because the the research firm that we're working with uh, really encourages you to just, just deep dive on, you know, one kind of public audience at a time. Um, and again, the the genesis for this sort of concept, you know, I talked earlier about, you know, being trained in, in the, by political parties to do narrative discipline, which the truth is, there's not a lot of social science, right? You, you wake up, you read the news, and you have to have a position immediately. So in the sort of rapid response, you know, day-to-day public debate uh, uh, that sort of shapes how we all live, a lot of that narrative work is is just intuitive or you know, logical or, you know, you, you try to you try to present the best message that you can. But this Narratives for Peace research project will help us really vet our assumptions against actual rig- rigorous research. Um, and a lot of the things that it's it's encouraging us to really think about how we position, um, you know, how we've tried to position peace building and why it's either going over the public's head or why it's not landing. Um, and, and also, I think part of the thing, part of what uh, the peace building community is quite excited about right now is um, really just feeling compelled to develop a new public brand for for peace. I think there's a there's a broad public understanding of the peace movement as affiliated with anti-Vietnam, as sort of flowers in your hair, hippies, um, you know, certainly to the West, but but generally globally, right? You have the, the peace sign, which is a universally understood sign, but it's not that modern. Right. And the movement, the, the image of the movement as quixotic or, you know, just pa- pacifist in principle or not serious or not hard. You know, we're really trying to change because actually, you know, the work that it takes to wake up every morning and, you know, build peace in your community on the front lines of conflict zones, you know, to, to have the bravery to mediate a dispute in your community, to have the bravery to lead a mediation you know, the, it, the work that our members do every day is tough and it is difficult and it is serious. Um, and we think that we need to present that to the public um, as opposed to seeing peace as weak and fluffy and unrealistic. Um, so, so we're really hoping that we'll understand how can we position peace building in this, reintroduce it to the public imagination um, in a way that kind of meets the, meets the imperative of the moment that we're living in, which is that violence, you know, Violent conflict is at a 30-year high. We have hate and polarization, you know, dividing our societies. We have, you know, uh, homicide worldwide going up for the first time in, in a couple decades. So, you know, the, the challenges before us are very real, um, and we need we need a peace a peace building movement that can you know that is um, 
ready to take on that challenge. And, and we believe the narrative and the branding of that is part of that puzzle. Thank you. That's really interesting. And I really agree that it's really difficult, the work of peace builders, and that really needs to be highlighted. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing the outcomes of the work that you're doing with uh, Plus Peace. And that brings us on to our final question, which is what does inclusivity personally mean to you? And how can we bring this concept beyond tokenism? Yeah, I mean, I think inclusivity, especially as, you know, a millennial woman um, who has, you know, spent my career in national security circles, I think inclusivity to me is just, you know, always being uncomfortable if everyone in the room looks like you, right? And always being uncomfortable if everyone in the room is making, everyone in the room making decisions is, you know, of a certain background. Um, And I just think being cognizant and uncomfortable with the the inequality that certainly pervades um, national security making, that to me is sort of what inclusivity means beyond a tokenization. I think, um, you know, you look at some of the photos coming out, certainly of, you know, the current U.S. political administration and the National Security Council, and it's a room full of white men, you know, all above 60. Uh, and that's not inclusive. And, you know, and, you know, foreign policymaking and national security um, is a very important space for the security and the safety of all people. Um, and if we aren't diversifying those tables and diversifying those platforms, then we're never going to get out of the the stalemate that we're in. So I think a lot about, yeah, just always being mindful of who's at the table and who isn't um, and and kind of committing to do your small part and, and always thinking about um, the diversity in any, in any situation that you're in. Thank you. It's been really great to have you here for the interview and uh, we appreciate your time and uh, we hope you come back soon. <laughs> Thanks, Natalie. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Peace Corner. Interested in hearing more from us? Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud or wherever you might be listening.